Able to hear my conversation with Nelson Arruda and Jules Boudreau from our multi-asset strategies team, we talk all about the niche trades that they've undertaken in their global macro fund, including certain currencies, commodities, and equities, and we travel all around the world. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with two guests. We have Nelson Arruda, who is the Senior Vice President of the McKinsey Multi-Asset Team, and his colleague, Jules Boudreau, who is our Senior Economist, also with the Multi-Asset Team. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Likewise. Thanks, Matt. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We're going to talk all about certain trades that are um, that exist within your global macro fund, and some of them are a little bit uh, in the minutia, but I think that's uh, part of the the excitement of this particular podcast. I'd like to start with oil. Clearly, oil has been a big story, uh, whether it be the Saudi supply cuts being extended uh, through the end of the year, recessionary worries, uh, the conflict in the Middle East. Nelson, maybe I'll turn it over to you. What's your current view on oil, and how are you uh, thinking about incorporating that in your portfolio? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Matt. And you're right, oil is, is very topical. Um, I think um, oil, one is oil really moves the markets, a lot of volatility. But I think what gets lost is is the fundamentals. So like in, in our view, the entire oil, uh, oil complex is pretty attractive. Um, mm. So right now, currently the physical oil market, what's available, it's relatively tight. So this year we've had global demand go up by by about 2% while productions remained flat. So that shortfall has really shown itself in inventories uh, relatively recently. Now that's where we are currently. If we look forward and think about projections, I think global consumption, look, and it varies by forecasting agency, but even if you take the modest projections from the IEA, you know, there's expected to be a relatively short, you know, significant shortfall over the next couple of years. And a big okay. driver for that has been underinvestment in energy infrastructure. Now, on top of that, though, it's really been a sentiment story. And I think you touched on, uh, you know, conflict in the Middle East. And we've had maybe a couple of years where uh, fear, uh, fear sentiment has really caused uh, oil to be relatively volatile. Um, but even looking at, say, 2022-23, uh, there was a lot of concern around recession. And those recessions really helped keep oil prices depressed. Right Now, as 2023, that, that recession didn't materialize. So that's... That uh, that recession fear really helped sustain and move oil prices on the second half of this year. Um, so the sentiment around oil is much more constructive. And then on top of that, you've had these conflicts, and that's probably added another premium on top of the price of oil. Um, and so, so I think right now, people both from a risk standpoint and from a fundamental standpoint are, are pretty pretty positive on oil. That includes us. Yeah, I'd add to that uh, that 
like Nelson said, positioning was pretty bearish throughout the start of the year. Those recession bets were very aggressive, being expressed through the oil complex, especially WTI and Brent futures. Uh, and when Saudi Arabia decided to go with voluntary cuts of a million barrels per day, one of the stated reasons was to knock out that bearish positioning by speculators. Right. Those big producers in OPEC were looking at fundamentals, were saying this market is getting tighter, but prices aren't reflecting that. What can we do? So they decided to knock out that positioning. So because of those big shocks from voluntary cuts, combined with the fact that we haven't had that recession in 2023, that's really... Uh, taken off the positioning that was bearish and moving oil towards fundamental. We think that's going to continue as more of those bearish bets come off. The other big uh, player on the global oil market, apart from OPEC, is the US. The right. US, after the Ukraine war, decided to sell oil from its st strategic petroleum reserve, which is called uh, more uh, the, the SPR. Um, and they did that to smooth last year's oil price spike when we had a barrel of oil go up to $120. That selling is done now, and they're actually going to be forced to buy back oil to refill the SPR for a few reasons. One is a national security reason to be ready for the next kind of big conflict. Second reason is if they don't do that, the salt caverns where the oil is getting stored for the SPR could start to degrade. So they have to now buy oil. They're inelastic buyer. They're price insensitive. So right. that's going to provide kind of a floor under oil. And maybe to finish, we've been talking a lot about oil itself on which we're pretty constructive but the companies that are either extracting or refining that oil are pretty cheap right now for a variety mm. of reasons but in general we're seeing that cheapness being reflected in the consulate consolidation that we're seeing in the industry we've got chevron buying hess very recently right. exxon merging with pioneer so that shows that those companies are still cheap and there is willingness to consolidate to improve market power so both on oil itself and on the companies that are on top of the chain, um, we're, we're pretty constructive right now. Yeah. And we touched on on the lack of investment. That consolidation uh, is going to help get around, um, you know, improve efficiencies, uh, get more barrels out per dollar invested. Uh, and and that will actually increase profitability. So we really, we on Jules's point, we really like uh, like the companies. Got it. Uh, so constructive on both the commodity, the uh, the equities, the consolidation, anything that touches oil. It sounds like you're uh, you're pretty constructive on. Just a, a follow up question on that. As you're looking at your view, other than price action going up and, and seeing oil really appreciated in value, what else would uh, make you sort of think about changing your position? If we if we got a deeper uh, prediction for recession in 2024 early on. Uh, is that something that, that would worry you? Or do you think that the forced buying of the strategic petroleum reserve and the other conditions would, are enough to, to uh, carry it through? I see two big risks, apart from you know just price going sure. towards our target. Yeah. Uh, the first one is a recession, right? We're not forecasting a recession. We haven't been for a year and a half. We thought those recession forecasts by a bunch of strategists were too aggressive. Um, we've always thought that growth would be solid. We still don't expect a recession over the next year. If that changes, if our view changes, then obviously we'll change that, uh, that view. And then the second uh, big risk is China. 
Mm. Uh, China's recovery was uh, pretty disappointing, even though growth has been better than it was last year. There's a lot of problems in the Chinese economy. It looks like they're stabilizing right now. Um, they've been buying oil even through their economic weakness. They've really been building up their crude inventories. Uh, but obviously, if the Chinese economy starts towards a downturn, uh, that would be a big hit uh, as it's the biggest uh, oil consumer in the world. Got it. And maybe, maybe uh, so that's the good macro story on the maybe the, the physical story. We, we really want to pay attention. We're really going to pay attention to inventories hmm. um, and refiner profitability. Um, and so uh, that could, you know, if those dramatically change, uh, then then that's something that would affect our view going forward. That's great. Let's stick with China, as you, as you mentioned, China, and we'll maybe shift the conversation more into currencies. I know that you, you guys think about currencies uh, quite a bit. We, we prepare for this podcast. I'm actually not even sure how to frame this question because I'm not familiar with what's going on. But you uh, are talking about a Chinese currency and state banks versus the, uh, the PBOC in China. Maybe elaborate on that and what are you seeing there? It's an interesting topic for a big nerd like myself uh, around <laughs> economics. Uh, maybe not for, for your podcast listeners, but I'm sure there's one or two that is going to be very interested. Uh, so we have around 23 currencies, I think, now in our investment universe, for example, the global macro fund. And the Chinese yuan is one of them, but it's very different from other currencies. It's not a pure floating rate exchange rate like we have, sure. for example, in Canada. It's a managed currency. But even more complicated is that on top of that, China's interventions in the FX market to manage their currency are hidden because they don't do it through their big reserve funds. They haven't touched that basically in a decade. They do it mostly through state banks. So banks that are related to the government will buy or sell foreign exchange abroad to influence the price of the yuan. And those state banks were probably not intervening over the past uh, few months when we've had yuan weakness. And that's one of the reasons why we disliked, uh, disliked the yuan because interest rates were low in China and the intervention was minimal. We're now seeing signs that China uh, state banks did intervene back in September and they're hmm. starting to intervene. So we've been Kind of, we're still short. We still don't like the Chinese yuan. Uh, the, the economy isn't great, as we were talking about. Um, but we were, we are cutting a little bit of that because they. It looks like they're starting to intervene to to uh, stabilize the currency. Yeah, and and, and you've seen uh, like the Chinese economy uh, uh, definitely has been below expectations coming out of uh, COVID. Um, For sure. But that economy is definitely starting to stabilize. The government is uh, injecting uh, stimulus to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. We would expect assets related to the Chinese economy to to recover and have some upside. You know, if you think about EU, uh, EU uh, equity exposure to China is significantly higher. Um, EM uh, is another good case where that uh, that Chinese growth story will help help those assets. Um, and so uh, we'll expect the government to continue patching up those holes, and uh, and there will be a lot of uh, a lot of winners uh, when that when that happens. That's great. Uh, maybe we'll circle back to some of that, but we'll stay in the region talking about currency uh, and move to Japan. This has been uh, far more telegraphed. I, I understand the context for this uh, for this question uh, and their yield curve control. Uh, certainly, there's lots of pressure uh, on loosening that yield curve control. Is that something that you see? And, and how are you thinking about uh, the, the Japanese uh, yen and economy in general? To give a little bit more context around this, uh, the 
Bank of Japan is the only major central bank that's still maintaining its policy rate below zero. The Swiss National Bank, which was a, another uh, staple of negative rates, did hike its policy rate from uh, from uh, zero to, to 1.75, I think, right now, over the past year. So Japan is the only one now. And not only that, they're not only keeping their policy rate low, they're also putting a cap on their 10-year yield. What that means is that they're going to buy bonds as much as, it, as they need to keep yields under 1%. Back a few, uh, last year actually, that target wasn't 1%, it was more around 0%. It then, right. It'd been loosening that slowly. Uh, it wasn't linear, there was a lot of uh, big moves. Will they, will they do it? Will they, won't they, they, they widen the band of tolerance? Um, in our view, they're trying to slowly normalize monetary policy. Japanese growth has actually been pretty solid. Inflation has been relatively high, uh, around 4% in terms of a trend over the past year. Um, and so, they're trying to tighten policy a little bit like we've been doing in Canada and the US, uh, but it's going to take some time and they're trying to avoid these speculative attacks by investors. They don't want to do it all of a sudden because then uh, we, we know that investors are going to pile on and force them to raise even more than they want. So in general, over the past year, they tended to normalize rates and increase the cap on their, their yield cap whenever invested investors uh, expected it the most. So this is the kind of trade that we think you can time perfectly. You need to play the long-term trend. And that's something we've been doing uh, mm. by betting against Japanese bonds for the past year. So the Japanese economy is not overheating. And I don't know how well this story has been covered. It's been on our, um, um, like our screens for a while. Um, but uh, if you look at Japanese equity, it's been a bright spot recently, and we've you know we've had multi-decade uh, areas where Japanese equities have really un- underperformed, really disappointed. Um, and if you look at the economy going forward, over not overheating, but but definitely warming up. And if you look at forecasts for the rest of 2023 and 2024, people are actually expecting the Japanese GDP to uh, to clearly outpace North American and European um, economies. And a big driver of that has been the, the yen and, sure. and Jewel talk to that. And so for an export driven economy, having a weak currency is, is, you know, is very, very good. Um, but, uh, as he mentioned, and in, in inflation expectations are, are 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 now higher than what the Bank of Japan is targeting, um, and so at some point uh, they're going to have to join the rest of the central banks out there. Makes a lot of sense. Maybe we'll shift now to talk about stick with currencies, but talk about uh, Latin America uh, versus uh, some of the smaller Asian uh, economies. Um, what are you What are you seeing in the split uh, between LATAM and uh, Asian currencies? Sure. So LATAM in Asia is something we talk about a lot, um, and it, so it's been a theme that we've had for uh, a little over two years. I'm going to look at Jewel for a nod if that's about right. If that were about right, um, and so. Uh, some of that, some of that has played played out, but we still see some opportunity there. So we've we've taken off some of that position. Um, what you've had is you've had a massive move improvement in balance of payments in Latin America since 2021. Right. Um, you have high commodity price sensitivity, right? Like if you think about 
uh, Brazil and soybeans. Soybeans is having a great run. You think about Chile and copper. Right. You, know, you think about Mexico and energy. There's been a lot of drivers for global inflation that they that's benefited from them, and and also uh, take Mexico being a major trading partner of the U.S. Um, so. Uh, that's been positive for their economy, and in some ways, they've been used to fighting inflation. So they were relatively uh, proactive in uh, raising interest rates, uh, and and that's been good for them. And then you can contrast that with EM, which is a bit of a different story. Maybe I'll throw it to Jewel for that one. Yeah. So on the other hand, so you had LATAM that's very been very uh, very solid in terms of their improvement in their balance of payment. Uh, situation. EM Asia, on the other hand, has kind of been at the opposite spectrum of that. Uh, they're big commodity importers. If you think, for example, about the Philippines, if you think about Thailand, um, they import a lot of energy and they export some goods that weren't as uh, favored over the past two years. Also tourism. Like Tourism is a big uh, driver in those countries. It's not major. It's not a huge part of GDP, but it's big enough that because we haven't gotten back to tur- the tourism numbers of pre-pandemic in Thailand and other EM uh, Asian countries, that, that's been a drag. Um, so sentiment is generally weak as well in terms of, of uh, EM Asia. Not a lot of investors like uh, Thai Bot and, um, and Philippine Peso right now. So we're kind of playing on that. And that's where I think we've had a little bit of disagreement within the team. Maybe <laughs> Nelson can, can talk a little bit about it. Uh, two years ago, I think we were all on board with this trade because not only the macro drivers were, were good, but it was a, a very contrarian trade to be long LATAM after the, the COVID. And we love those contrarian, contrarian bets when we can find them. Now, two years later, it's not a contrarian bet anymore. Uh, sentiment has definitely shifted positive. So uh, I think some of us in the team still like it. Others don't like the fact that it's become more consensus and that just generally those LATAM currencies are just 20% more expensive than they were two years ago. Right. And that gets to our like when there's there's two parts. There's like the trade. What do you want to put on, and how much you want to put on? And um, I think it was a it was a big trade uh, before when when we really like there were just so many uh, so many signals of higher expected return. It's a little less now, um, and so we'll go back and forth. And you know things about the disagreements when we're when we're looking at the model, you know, what's going on with those currency, where for value is, where sentiment is, uh, where we think the fundamentals, where the political situation is, when there's less conviction, uh, that will lead us to take, take less risk. Great explanation. Let's uh, finish currencies, I guess. There's one last one that you have on, uh, and that's the Norwegian krona. Uh, what's going on in Norway and what, what makes uh, that a compelling opportunity? Matt, if you thought that the uh, Chinese yuan story would be uh, quirky and, uh, yeah. and a niche, get ready for the Norwegian krone one. Uh, so we do love the Norwegian krone. It's an odd currency as well because Norway's management of its economy is odd. Typically, when a country is a big exporter of a commodity, like oil in the case of Norway, and then the price of that commodity goes up, that extra oil revenues, revenue uh, gushes in the economy and it go, gets recycled, leads to higher growth, boosts inflation, interest rates, and by, uh, by, by corollary, the currency's value. But not in Norway. And it's one of the only countries like that. In Norway, when the price of oil goes up, people don't spend that, that extra revenue because the gov- government saves that extra oil revenue right. in the 
government pension fund global, which it's it's, um, it's sovereign wealth fund. It's uh, world famous. I'm sure a lot of listeners have heard about it. Sure. And then they'll even take extra tax revenues in Krona and convert it into U.S. dollars and other uh, foreign currencies. So that transmission mechanism from export prices to currency appreciation is broken, and that really explains why we that the, the Krona hasn't follow this rise in oil prices that we had in in the coming two in the past two years and even kept weakening versus peers and maybe now it's flipping um nelson uh, you, you want to talk about uh, going forward a little bit i think one primary driver that that you have to anchor on in 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 understanding currencies is uh like where fair value is fair value um uh is is it has to be an anchor if you think about trade flows and and how corporations uh locate businesses and 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 there are anchors and may, i don't know if your audience is, is familiar some people are with the concept of the purchasing power parity but sure there are strong yeah strong fundamental anchors that over long horizons really help and so uh so for something uh like norway you know you can have these shorter term uh sort of shocks to the system that can really deviate it but um but i think we're where they are right now, we, we would expect uh, that fair value. It's it's far enough from fair value that that we think it'll it'll march its way back there uh, over over some time. It doesn't converge very quickly, but I think that's it's a very nice uncorrelated um, trade to have in, in a portfolio. Yeah, and I would say that uh, the the Norwegian krone is so cheap right now, but it's not because a currency is cheap that'll appreciate. You also need a catalyst. You need something that's going to change. And right now we have that cheap valuation. We've had it for a little while. We were just missing that catalyst. And now those FX purchases by the central bank that I was talking about earlier, they're widening down. They absorbed that oil price spike from last year. That's mostly done. And now those purchases are winding down. You'll have more of that big inflow in the the balance of payments go into the economy, stimulating growth, stimulating inflation. So that's the catalyst we're looking at. But the reason why we have that size of a bet is really because it's so cheap right now. Got it. So cheap and mean reversion, it sounds like, is the... There you go. And the catalyst. And the, yeah, and and the, the catalyst. catalyst because right. it, yeah, the cheap and the mean reversion is sometimes the same thing. Sometimes. Sometimes. Some, okay, sometimes. great. Uh, <laughs> let's shift. Let's shift to equities uh, and talk about uh, European equity market. What are you seeing within the European equity market, and how are you playing it? Great question. That one. So we were talking about Latin versus Asia, uh, which is one trade we've had on for a little bit, uh, a few years now. Um, this European stock story is not one we've had on for a while. Um, a year and a half ago, we were pretty bearish on European stocks because of the energy crisis. Um, that sure. has come to pass. Uh, we've had a warm winter last year, and the uh, European countries have done a very good job at uh, new energy generation, both from new green energy outside of China. We've never had a quicker increase in green energy generation, and also from reopening a few uh, uh, coal uh, power plants. That part, uh, they don't like us talking about it as much. But <laughs> we'll, that's, we'll, yeah, we'll just, uh, it's, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Hopefully the the uh, uh, the prime minister of of uh, Germany won't call us uh, about sure. that. Um, I'll but, take the call. Don't worry. <laughs> all right, thanks, Matt. So so we've generally uh, th- that risks have come to pass, and now we think the um, the the land uh, the landscape is more bullish for for these uh, European stocks, especially in southern European countries, especially because of banks in hmm. Italy and in Spain. 
There's something very interesting about the dynamics in those countries because of low competition and the fact that those banks have excess liquidity those Southern European banks haven't had to increase deposit rates for depositors to attract deposits from their customers. But the rates on their loans have risen as the ECB hiked rates. So that means that their net profit margins are improving and are more positive. Um, I would say that that's one factor. The other factor is that the ECB starting last year put on a new tool called the anti-fragmentation tool, not a great name, that's how it's called, uh, where they're trying to artificially depress bond yields in Italy and Spain and other Southern European countries. Uh, if you go back in at the end of 2010s, you had huge spreads on these Italy and Spain yeah, sure. bonds because of default risks. Now those have come down a lot because of the uh, kind of financial repression by the ECB that we could say. And a lot of Ital- Italian and Spanish banks hold their country's debt. So sure. that decreases solvency risks on on those banks' balance sheets, and, and you know, just think about the macro and um, and interest rates really dominate. The ECB is is in our view probably done hiking, right. and so that's that's going to help the the equity sector overall. Um, so that's that's also yeah, it's going to help. Uh, it's going to help the risk on that trade. And just for clarity, when you're talking about the Southern European countries, are you specifically focused on banks being the unique opportunity there or banks drive the rest of the economic growth so the entire country is looking appealing? If you look at these uh, indices in uh, in uh, Italy and Spain, even if you don't want to invest in banks, it's a little bit like Canada, right? Banks oh, okay. are a big portion of those uh, indices. So we don't, in our funds, we're not stock pickers. We don't choose stocks. We invest in indices, but you got to understand what's in that index. And right. there's just a lot of banks in Italy and Spain. Uh, they've been a reason why those uh, stock indices in general underperformed. Yep. In, in the past decade, and now we think they're going to be a driver for, for some, some hopefully decent performance. Um, and maybe to finish up, uh, Nelson talked about it earlier, the fact that ch- the Chinese stabilization could be positive for, right. for EU stocks, and that's another, it's not the main reason, but that's another reason why uh, we could expect some, uh, some stabilization in, in China to lead to um, constructive growth for, for uh, European equities. Makes makes sense. That would probably be more diverse uh, across both North and South uh, as a motivating factor is my expectation. Correct. But yeah, you, you're going to get Germany benefiting and and, right. uh, and other areas, um, and so all, all, like all these little themes help you build up conviction and and drive drive your uh, drive your trade size. Good. Let's uh, let's take one last one, uh, and we'll come back home to Canada. What's your current view on Canada, and and uh, what are you doing there? I talked a little bit earlier when I were talking about LATAM versus Asia that we prefer being contrarians. It's never a good sign when uh, when you're in the consensus. And I got to say that here, unfortunately, we are in the consensus and it doesn't feel great. Uh, but we do think the Canadian economy... It does economy, not feel great. It does not feel great. <laughs> we do think the Canadian economy is going to suffer from those two recent rate increases and will slow faster than the, the US economy. But... I think where it's a little bit different in our portfolios is we try to express that view not by just buying outright Canadian bonds, which is more the typical way I think that a lot of uh, fund managers are playing this. Uh, we're instead playing the yield curve. So we're betting on a okay. steepening of the yield curve. So we're rather than just overweighting bonds in Canada versus other countries, 
were betting that the yield on shorter term bonds, like the two year that's more policy rate sensitive, is going to do- go down faster than these long term yields. And we think that uh, that curve, that it's still much more inverted than in the US, for example, will uninvert quickly. Uh, so that's how we're, we're playing that theme. Maybe Nelson can talk a little bit about uh, why we think that uh, that could happen. Yeah, I think, uh, and again, I, I don't think there's too much a surprise. So happy, uh, happy you left this for last uh, map. But um, we we view the Bank of Canada as probably done hiking. Um, so sure. we had one in June and July. Its effect on the economy, you know, we've already seen some of it, um, and that will actually continue. If you think about the lags uh, in the effect of, of monetary policy, and uh, probably short rates have probably peaked and will start coming down. Uh, inflation, look, inflation will stay sticky, and I think that's a bit of a theme outright. But we think outright yields will still be relatively high. I think the higher for longer narrative um, is is somewhat sticky. Um, but we also expect deficits to stay high, um, and um, you know we really think pro. You know, if you look at Canadian uh, productivity or per capita fundamentals, they're relatively weak. Um, but Canada's uh, growth in like active population continues to be strong, um, so we think just being in the two years is a better spot there. Got it. And how does the uh, to bring it really full circle? The oil story play into your view on Canada. Clearly, the interest rate sensitivity uh, focused on housing, banking, that type of thing. Oil would be supportive, presumably. Price goings up. So how do you how do you think of that? I'd say that uh, we do think the Canadian economy is going to slow very quickly and we think we're going to enter a period of divergence between the Canadian economy and the U.S. economy larger than we've seen since the 2015 oil price drop and maybe even the the early 1990s. But we don't expect a major recession in Canada, uh, a catastrophic recession for two reasons. One is we are pretty constructive on the U.S. economy and the U.S. is a pretty big driver of demand for Canadian goods. Uh, and so that's going to help put a, a floor under growth. And then the second reason is the one you mentioned, right? If we're constructive on oil um, and we think that oil demand is going to stay high, oil supply outside of Canada is going to be uh, limited, that's a good opportunity for Canada and especially uh, the, those uh, prairie provinces. So we do think growth is going to slow. We think the bank is done hype- hiking, but we think that those two factors are going to put a floor under um, under Canadian, Canadian growth. And that's why, again, we think it's risky to just go fully long bonds in, in an environment when you have fast population growth, demand from the US, and, uh, and, and, and that oil story. The Canadian currency and, and, and the interest rate market does have a sensitivity to the oil, but there are other factors. Canadian dollars, um, uh, US dollars is very, very strong. It's been somewhat overvalued on fundamentals, but Canadian dollars may be a little overvalued too. Uh, and the sensitivity to oil for a Canadian market tends to vary through time. Um, so, um, you know, the oil story, we're constructive on oil, but that won't necessarily dominate the, uh, the Canadian asset trade. Great context. Uh, last question for me, uh, Nelson Jules. You manage a number of different of uh, portfolios or suites of portfolio. Uh, we talked about all of these trades. How do you sort of filter them through the different uh, products that you manage? Yeah, so uh, so we manage uh, several funds. Uh, if you think about Symmetry, which we're relatively known for, Symmetry being a managed solution can invest up the. 10% in a liquid alt, something like uh, global, global macro is in symmetry. Uh, and so we get trades uh, directly through there. Um, and some of the trades we talked about, 
you know, fit a fit a fit a regular fund. Uh, so we talked about uh, we talked about Japan. Uh, the yen uh, is a currency trade that we have in in the majority of our portfolios. Um, like w- one example is we've we've just launched the uh, uh, all equity ETF portfolio. Right. Um, and there we'll will uh, have uh, that yen trade on. Makes sense. So a lot of these more esoteric trades through the global macro, but you're invested in the global macro and a lot of the other lineup. Uh, and some of the more dominant ones are uh, direct exposure in, in the various portfolios that you, uh, that you manage. That's great. Nelson, Jules, this was uh, fascinating for me. We went into some sec- segments of the world economy that I haven't been in. So thank you for that. appreciate the experience uh, and appreciate you being so generous with your time and walking through this. Great. Thank you, Matt. Thanks. content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 